Well, good morning, everyone. Someone has, uh, someone has said that if you aren't careful, life can pull you in so many directions that you actually start to begin to forget the actual purpose and reason for all the things that you're doing and all the directions that you're being pulled in. Does that relate to any of you? You can understand a little bit about what that means. It's funny, this week I sat down to actually write this message and I had to move two piles of paper on my desk that are always sitting there. They just keep getting added to. And it, was rem- it reminded me that I allow myself to get busy in so many things and so many of the things don't get done in a timely manner. And it ends up costing in, in various different ways the fact that I don't get to all these different things. But, but I want to narrow it down a little bit and just not talk about life in general for a moment anyways. One thing that I find is that when I get involved in an event or a project or a program, something that I'm involved in the leadership in or helping to run, I find often that the frantic activity and the busyness that comes along with those events, activities, those things, the frantic activity actually causes me to lose out on some of the entertainment some of the enjoyment, uh, some of the, the key elements of what is taking place. And I don't know if some of you can relate to that uh, as well. And I was trying to think of some examples of that. And one, and John and Lauren aren't here this morning, but I did tell John that I may bring up their wedding uh, as an example. Uh, their wedding was a beautiful day. Wouldn't want to change anything about it. It was for them. And so any involvement I had was so that their day would be perfect for them. But on that day, not only was I the father of the bride, but I also was the MC of the reception. And again, as much as it was for them and as perfect as they felt it was, one thing I noticed was that my mind was so occupied with what was taking place and what was to take place and who was going to be involved next that I missed out on some things. I didn't really get a chance to spend some visiting time with a lot of the guests that were at the reception. I didn't really fully get to take in some of the speeches or the things that other people were doing because I was so consumed with what was going to happen next. And so the busyness, the frantic activity of that day actually took a little bit of the day away from me, although it wasn't for me just in case John and Lauren listen to this. I don't regret what I did, John and Lauren. But if you've been involved in running an event, I think you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I was thinking of it last weekend, or was it two weekends ago? Whenever it was, the men's breakfast. I got there right at 8 o'clock and grabbed a coffee and sat down and talked to people. Meanwhile, the people that had been there since 7 o'clock or whenever they got there. I don't even know when they got there. They were in the kitchen, and they were cooking and preparing, and then all of a sudden this food showed up. Someone said, Grace, and we, I got to go up and eat. And meanwhile, some of these people were still in the kitchen, and they were cooking. And their frantic activity, their busyness, actually took away from them some of the enjoyment that I had from that event. And I think when you're talking about a meal especially some of you ladies, you can relate to what I'm talking about. And it's quite 
uh, relevant that we are in a new series called Dinner with Jesus because perfect examples of frantic activity and busyness actually taking away some of the enjoyment and, and, and some of the other benefits of, of a, a dinner is a great example for those who are actually involved in hosting it uh, and running it. I, I remember as a kid, my parents, every Christmas would have this huge Christmas party. And it would be like a couple of Saturdays before Christmas, they would invite a whole bunch of friends from church in Toronto to this party. And I was a kid, and we only had two levels on our house. So I was upstairs. I wasn't allowed to go downstairs because that's where all the adults were. But I could hear from upstairs all the fun and all the laughter and the singing and the enjoyment, and I could smell the food, and I knew some of the food that was going to be put out. And so I could hear all this stuff going on. But my mom was constantly in the kitchen. And I'm going, Mom, why are you up here? All the fun stuff is going on downstairs. And I mean, her answer would be, well, someone has to do the preparation. Someone has to put the food out. Someone has to be doing the dishes. And that's what my mom did most of the time on those Christmas parties. And I even noticed that uh, when Allison and I got married and we would have people over. Allison would spend so much time in the kitchen and she would be preparing, and she would be cleaning the house before people came. I, I eventually learned, I think I do a little bit better now, realizing that I have a part to play as well, but I didn't do quite as well earlier on in our marriage. But now, Allison's been doing something different. When we have people coming over, if my family's coming over for Thanksgiving or Christmas uh, dinner or any of those kind of things, Allison does a lot of the prep ahead of time. And so I asked her, well, why? Why are, you, why, are you, why are we cooking the turkey a day ahead? Why are you doing this? Why do we have to clean the house up a day before? It's because she wants to enjoy everything that's going on, just like everybody else. And so dinners are a great example of how the busyness and how frantic activity can take away from what's actually taking place for those who are doing all the work. But the reality is, for most of us, life is really busy. Our schedules are filled. We are pulled in so many directions. And if we're not careful, frantic living will have a negative impact on our life. It'll affect our health. It'll affect our relationships. It'll affect our job performance. It can affect our finances. Frantic living can have a negative impact on our life. And this reality surrounding frantic living doesn't spare our relationship with God. Frantic living can have a negative impact impact on our relationship and on our walk with God. And that's really the main point of the text that I want to look at with you this morning. Uh, Often I don't just spill the beans right at the beginning of a message and say, here's the big idea. But this morning I want to do that. I want you to hear what the main point of this text is going to be, and you can decide whether you think this is going to be a relevant message for you. And my guess is most of you are going to hear something that's relevant. And here's the big idea. Here's the main point. 
the most important priority in life is to know Jesus and to center your life around him in true devotion and in full submission. However, if you're not careful, if you let your guard down, if you're not disciplined, the busyness and the distraction and the misplaced priorities of life will cause you to fall short of realizing everything that God wants you to enjoy and to experience about your relationship with him. Did you get that? The most important priority in our life is to know Jesus and to center our life around him. However, if we're not careful, the busyness, the distractions, the misplaced priorities, the frantic living that many of us can relate to can cause us to fall short of realizing and experiencing and enjoying everything that God wants for us to experience in our relationship with him. And when I realized that that was the main point of this short little story that Al asked me to cover this morning, Ouch. Because this story speaks to me so loud and so clear. I thought it was just this story, as you're going to hear, this story about a, a, this dinner party gone wrong. It's like five verses. But then Jesus comments. And I realized what Jesus was saying. And I realized this, this was a very special dinner with Jesus. This is one that packs a loving punch. And uh, I don't know if you know what the text is for this morning, because uh, we read, read from Deuteronomy uh, during the beginning of our service. But the story's found in Luke 10. I'm going to ask you to t- turn to Luke 10. It's right, right at the very end of the chapter, verses 38 through 42. And if you've got your Bible, uh, turn to that passage. If you're following a Bible app, uh, find Luke 10, 38 to 42. And as I said, it's a really short passage. And and if you're one of those people that gauge how long my message is going to be based on how many verses it is, then, then you can feel good about that. There's no scientific proof to back that. But it's only five verses. It's a really simple story. It seems very straightforward. Let me read it to you. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And that's all there is to the text. No big, long theological words uh, no huge lessons on doctrine or from first glance anyways. 
And yet it's a story that's left a lot of people confused and frustrated. Asking questions like, who's right and who's wrong? Was Martha right? Is Mary right? Are we supposed to choose one of the sisters to side with? Wasn't it right for Martha to be ticked off that Mary was just sitting on the floor at the feet of Jesus? What was Mary thinking, leaving Martha to do all the work? It's a story that's been misread over the years. Some people read the story and they conclude it's about woman. And the tendency for them to get so busy in the task of houseworking, keeping a home. And yet the story isn't, or the point of the story isn't about woman. It's about discipleship. In fact, the main point of the story would be as equally true if Mary and Martha were Michael and Martin. But there's one thing to note. I think Paul mentioned this last week as well, but it's, it's true in this story. The fact that Jesus would go into the home of two women and would teach them and would dine with them, that would shock the audience of the first century. But Luke wants us to know the value and the importance and the significance and the care that Jesus has for everyone, including women. And he elevates the importance of woman in this story. Let me set the story up a little bit. It's about six months before the crucifixion of Jesus. And Jesus is going from village to village. Luke has made it very clear that ultimately the end destination for Jesus is Jerusalem and the cross. But Jesus is going from village to village. And on this day, he is in Bethany, a place that he's been a number of times before. And he's at the home of Mary and Martha. Lazarus, as you may know, was a brother. But apparently on this day, he wasn't home. And so it's just Mary and Martha, Mar- Mary and Martha that are home. And Jesus comes for a visit. Now, Jesus is known to Mary and Martha. They would have been thrilled that Jesus had come for a visit. Uh, They would have loved the thought of being able to host Jesus. And Luke wants us to understand something very significant here. I don't want to miss this. In the original manuscript, you don't find the name Jesus. The one who came that day for dinner was the Lord. It was none other than the Son of God. The Lord. It was a very special dinner guest that had come that day. And it's quite apparent from our story that Mary and Martha are quite different individuals. They had different ideas on what it meant to make Jesus at home. And so I think as we walk our way down this story... It's important for us to understand a little bit more about Martha, what makes her tick, what her present heart condition was. And it's important for us to to take a look at Mary. 
to see her viewpoint of, on the events of that day and to understand what made her heart tick. And so as we begin verse 38, we're introduced to Martha. Now, I'm not a regular reader of Good Housekeeping magazine. I think that's the name of the magazine. I'm not sure if they have a hall of fame of good homemakers, but if they did, I'm sure Martha's picture would be in that hall of fame. Martha is a perfect example of a type A personality. She's big-hearted, she's generous, she's hospitable, she's a born leader, she takes on big tasks. She's demanding, but she's not going to be any more demanding of somebody else than she would be of herself. And it would appear that she has a little bit of a short fuse, as we'll see in a moment. She knows what having Jesus for dinner, the work that's going to be involved, she knows what it entails. And one of the things that we don't know, we don't know if if this was a planned dinner, if this was an unexpected dinner. We don't know for sure if it was just Jesus that showed up, expected or unexpected, or whether Jesus and his disciples and some other followers showed up. Most commentators lean towards the fact that this was unexpected, that Mary and Martha knew Jesus. They loved Jesus. They were thrilled to have him. They'd had him there before. But Jesus, and most likely his disciples, and most likely some other followers, knocked on the door, and Mary and Martha opened the door, and it was, whoa, it's Jesus and his disciples and some followers, and they look hungry. And Martha knew what was going to be involved, and she was going to make sure that dinner with Jesus was going to be a fantastic event. And so Jesus knocks on the door and in comes Jesus and he sits down and his followers sit down and Mary sits down and Martha makes her way to the kitchen because her mind is spinning and she knows everything that needs to be done. And she's making her way through the living room uh, into the dining room and she realizes, I don't have enough seats at the dining. So she goes outside and finds some chairs and puts it around the dining table. She goes out and gets the best plates and starts setting the table. And her mind's saying, okay, what am I going to cook for all these people? And so she starts peeling potatoes and seasoning fish and grabbing some vegetables. And she's got things on the stove. She's starting to bake some, some, some rolls. And her mind is just spinning. And she gets to the point, I need some help. Where's Mary? And so she, you know, probably with one thing in one hand and some rolls in the other hand, she peeks through the door and there's Mary. Verse 39, sitting at the feet of Jesus. You ever worked with someone like that? You know, there's work to be done and they're outside taking a smoke break, Right? There's stuff to be done and they're in the corner reading the paper or looking at their phone. I don't know what Martha figured this partnership between her and Mary was going to be, having Jesus and his disciples show up for dinner, but it definitely wasn't working to where Martha had expected. And so she starts to stew. And very soon, it's not just the potatoes that are boiling on the stove Martha starts to boil. And as we read the story, 
It says in verse 40, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, the English reads so kind, but totally misses the emotion of the original language. What really happened is that Martha explodes out of the kitchen, totally ticked off at her sister, calls her sister out and scolds Jesus, the Lord, and says, don't you care? And we all know when you say to someone, don't you care, what are you actually really saying? You don't care. You don't care that my sister is sitting on the floor listening to your words and I'm doing all the work because if you did care, you would have told her to get up and get in the kitchen and help me. And it's at that moment, the true present heart condition of Martha is revealed. She's busy, but not blessed. The joy and thrill that she experienced when she saw Jesus at the door has now been replaced with, with frustration and anger. Her desire to serve Jesus has pulled her away from spending any time with Jesus. Her occupation for Jesus, her being occupied for Jesus, has replaced the priority of being occupied with Jesus. I don't know if any of those characteristics of her heart condition sound close to home, because I know they do for me. Especially that the desire to serve Jesus pulled her away from actually spending time with Jesus. And Mary's sitting on the floor. What an awkward moment. Ever ever been in a situation where a husband and a wife or two work, people that work together start squabbling with each other right in front of you? You kind of like to just back out of the room. And maybe that's how some of them felt when Martha calls out Mary and then scolds Jesus because he's not caring. Did Martha... Sorry, did Mary not know that Martha was frustrated? Did she not get the idea that there was lots of work to be done? So maybe she should get up and help? I don't know all that was going through Mary's mind. But I do know that her desire to be with Jesus and to devour every word he said was greater than her desire to help her sister. 
Someone has said that on that day, there was two meals being served. There was a physical meal that Martha was preparing. It was probably going to take two hours to prepare. It was probably a gorgeous meal, but it was probably consumed within 15 minutes. And four or five hours later, everyone was going to be hungry again. But there was a spiritual meal being served by Jesus himself. And that's what Mary desired. And so in verse 39, it says that Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, listening to his every word. You know, it's interesting. There's, I think there's five Marys in the New Testament. This specific Mary, the, the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus, she's mentioned three times in the Gospel of John. She's mentioned once here in Luke. And all four times, her posture her placement, her position is the same. At the feet of Jesus. I, I don't know what you think about feet. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of feet. Uh, as I tell my, my family, us Mackies were obviously blessed with great looks, but shortchanged on what our feet look like. Uh, and so the, the idea of sitting at someone's feet... I have a hard time with. Even when I think of the feet of Jesus, first century, sandals, dirt, sweat. And yet the, the writers of Scripture love talking about the feet of Jesus. Like I think a 16 or 17 times they reference the feet of Jesus. In fact, we could do a sermon series on the feet of Jesus. Because if you study the passages, there's five themes, at least five themes that come out. But at the feet of Jesus, literally and, and figuratively, some major things take place. That it's at the feet of Jesus we receive instruction. We, we receive at the feet of Jesus instruction for living and salvation. That it's at the feet of Jesus, true worship takes place as we bow before the feet of Jesus. Again, symbolically, but as we bow at the feet of Jesus in devotion, in adoration. It's at the feet of Jesus where we're to lay our burdens and where our burdens are lifted up. And if you read through the New Testament, people who were in dire need of help, who were, who were hopeless, who needed healing, where do they go? They threw themselves at the feet of Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He responds. He heals. He lifts up the burden. It's at the feet of Jesus our burdens find relief. It's at the feet of Jesus where we find the act of submission. When we bow before the feet of Jesus and we say, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. And it's at the nail-scarred feet of Jesus that we receive forgiveness. Those are the themes that we find in Scripture concerning the feet of Jesus. So is it any wonder that Mary would be found at the feet of Jesus? Verse 39, what does it say? She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Just think of some of the words that go along with that sentence. Mary sat when I think of sitting, I think of someone who's quieting, quieting themselves. 
She sat quietly at the feet. I think of closeness. Because how much closer can you get to a person than sitting at their feet? So she sat quietly in closeness at the feet of Jesus, listening, attentive to the words of Jesus, submission, quietness, closeness, closeness, attentiveness, submission. And it's at that moment we get a glimpse of the present heart condition of Mary. She's utterly devoted to Jesus. And her greatest desire is to spend time with him. And so we've got Martha and we've got Mary and there's so many elephant in the room type questions. But who's, who's serving? Is Martha serving? Is Mary serving? Well, well, well both are serving. Martha's serving by preparing the meal. Mary's serving by listening to the words of Jesus. Well, then who's in the better place? Well, in this story, the better place is at the feet of Jesus. Because Mary is listening to the very words of Jesus and she's ready to respond. Martha's so distracted, she can't even hear the words of Jesus. Remember what I said the main idea of the story is? that our greatest priority is to know Jesus and to center our life around him. However, if we're not careful, the busyness and the distraction and the misplaced priorities, as we're going to see in a minute, even what are in and of themselves good things of life, if we're not careful, can cause us to miss out on much that God wants us to enjoy and to experience in our relationship with him. Then we come to the last two verses and we see Jesus' response. And I'm glad he was there to deal with the little squabble that's going on uh, between the sisters. And uh, in verse 41 and verse 42, we see his response. And one thing that Luke wants to make very obvious to his readers is the gentleness and the kindness and the compassion from which Jesus responds. And Jesus says, I can see the smile on his face. Martha, Martha, I appreciate what you're doing. I know that you are serving me out of your love. But then he points to something that's more important. He says, Martha, all, all, all your busyness, all your frantic activity has, has left you distracted and worried and upset about too many things doing too many things when only several, in fact, indeed, only one thing is necessary. What is Jesus saying? What does he mean? I think there's a word play going on. What Jesus is saying is to Martha, Martha, you have allowed yourself to get so distracted, so worried, upset, doing so many things When physically, given the fact that this may be my last visit here, I'm the Lord. One dish would have sufficed. You could have thrown a loaf of bread and some peanut butter and jam. 
and sat down and listened to my teaching. That would have sufficed. And so in one sense, physically, I think that's what Jesus is saying. But then spiritually, what Jesus is saying to Martha is there's one thing that's important. One thing that takes precedence over anything else. And that's focusing on me. And so what Jesus does is he's not condemning Martha for her service in as much as he's elevating the importance and the priority and the excellence and the permanence of fellowship with him. It's a short text. And I always find that with short text, every word matters. And there's some words in it that you don't want to miss concerning Martha. Martha was distracted. If you had a King James Bible, it would say she was cumbered, or we would say encumbered. She was burdened. It was like she was wearing a cement straitjacket. She was burdened. The actual word literally uh, for distracted in the Greek means to be pulled in a thousand different directions. It's a favorite saying of mine. If, if Allison asks, well, why didn't you do that? Have you done that? Well, Allison, I got a million things to do. And so I like, I feel comfortable knowing I got scriptural backing for my response, but I don't think it's a real positive backing because Martha was distracted and she was worried. Worried literally means that your mind is in pieces. So her mind is being stretched in a hundred different directions and her mind is in pieces and she's upset, she's angry, she's frustrated and she's miserable and she wants to share that misery around. And so those are some of the words not to miss. And then don't miss the contrast between the many things and the one thing. You see, the many things that Martha were doing were overwhelming and, and squeezing out the one thing that really mattered. This is important because it doesn't just apply to Martha. It applies to some of us here this morning. For Martha, many of the things that she was doing were good things. They were useful things. They, they were practical things. but they were pushing Jesus to the side. They were causing her to miss out that which was to be the priority in her life. And so what's Jesus saying to Martha? Martha, I appreciate what you're doing. I know it's coming out of a place of love. I know your motives are good most of the time. But your heart is distracted and divided. Your zeal to serve me has pushed me to the edge of your heart. And I want to be at the center of everything for you. That's so much more important than you putting on a banquet for me for dinner. And what's Jesus saying to us? I'll let you fill in some of the blanks. But I'll make myself vulnerable. 
Because I think Jesus, through this text, is saying, Brent, I appreciate what you do for me. And I know you serve me out of, out of a place of love. But your heart is so often distracted and divided. Your zeal to serve me, to be a good father and parent, to run a successful business, to be involved in ministry. Your zeal to do all those things, Brent, so often pushes me to the edge of your heart. And I want to be at the center of everything. Because that's the most important thing compared to all the successes that I think that I can have in the busy, frantic life that I end up living. A lot more questions that could be answered. A lot more points that we can pull out. Do we side with Martha and Mary? I don't think we have to. The church needs Martha's. We need Mary's. As one speaker said, if I was in a sinking boat, I'd want both. Mary would pray and Martha would look for the life jackets. Right? We need both. And what about the meal? Someone had to make the meal. The point of the story is not that Martha was wrong because she made the meal. Where Martha went wrong was the attitude of her heart. Martha could have just made a simple meal. Martha could have rejoiced that Mary had the opportunity to listen to Jesus and look forward to after when Jesus and the disciples left that Mary could come in and help do the dishes or maybe Mary would do the dishes all herself and just share with Martha everything that she had heard. But to me, the most important question to end with is how did Mary end up in the better place that she was in? How did she end up at the feet of Jesus? It's a simple answer. Not always easy to do, but it's a simple answer. She chose to sit at the feet of Jesus. It didn't happen by accident. It didn't happen by chance. She chose. We all get that the most important priority in our life is to know Jesus and allow our lives to be centered around him and to be ruled by him. And we also understand what happens when we allow our busy life, our frantic life, our distractions, our misplaced priorities, all the good things that we get involved in. We know what happens when we allow that to push Jesus from the center of our life. So how do we keep that from happening? It has to begin with a choice. And that would be a whole other sermon to practically look at how we make that choice. But it has to begin with a choice. It has to be an understanding that Jesus needs to be the priority in our life, that our life needs to be centered around him. Praise team, you can come on up. I'm just going to end with a, a, a quote written by Henry Blackaby in his book, Experiencing God. He says, a love relationship with God is more important than any other single factor in your life. Everything in your Christian life, everything about knowing him and experiencing him, everything about knowing his will depends on the quality of your love relationship with God. If that's not settled, nothing in your life will be right. Your walk with the Lord is the single most important aspect of your life. 
If it is not as it should be, nothing else will function properly. So make sure you are investing your life, your time, your resources in things that will last, not in things that will pass away. You must recognize that God created you for eternity or you will invest in the wrong priorities.